Assalamu alaikum. I'm Imam Tam, and welcome to Dogma Disrupted, a podcast that looks at the most pressing issues and ideologies that face us as Muslims today. For our first episode, we have a very special guest, the editor-in-chief of Yaqeen Institute, Dr. Waymer Anjum. Welcome. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you. So today we wanted to bring you in to talk about ethics. Uh, that's been the subject of a lot of the um, the academic output that you've partaken into. And I think it's really significant to Yaqeen Institute's mission. So we're going to get into all of that, inshallah. But first, I wanted to kind of lay the groundwork by having you explain to people what is ethics and maybe more importantly, what's the place that ethics occupies in the modern world that we live in today? Okay. Yeah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah. Wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah. Um, the word ethics or morality that are used interchangeably mean um, this idea of actions being right or wrong, good or bad. And we can talk about practical ethics. We can talk about uh, theoretical ethics, of which looks at where does the idea of good and bad come from, whereas more applied ethics we look at the actual evaluation of whether something is right or wrong. Now, if you look at Islam, first and foremost, the idea of right and wrong is absolutely everywhere, right? So if you look through the Quran um, um, and all of Islam, uh, the idea that certain things are good and other things are bad, right? That's absolutely central. So you could say, all of Islam is ethics. Uh, all of Islam is this moral question of what is the right thing to do and in all respects. So therefore, um, in a strict sense, you can't really separate that this is Islamic ethics. It's almost like saying this is Islamic Islam because all of Islam is about uh, the right thing to do, the right way to live, the right way to respond to life itself. Um, and the right way to respond to life is to recognize the one creator who is um, uh, who is the bestower of life and form, and as such, the there is this ethical impulse, the fundamental axiomatic idea that we must be thankful to the one who has given us everything, thanking the benefactor, shukr al munam. Um, as Muslim theologians have called it, uh, or as the Quran calls it, Hal ihsan illa ihsan. is there anything um, you know, more appropriate than responding to good with good, to, 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 to express gratitude to the gifts that God has given us? Um, but when we look specifically at the idea of uh, ethics in Islam, you don't find any translation, any particular word, the, the word that comes, comes closest to it is the word khuluq or akhlaq. Um, but if you look at the tafsir of that word in the Quran, you know, uh, when, for example, in Surah Noon, one of the very early surahs to be revealed to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to the Prophet, you are upon a great khuluq, uh, a magnificent khuluq, a magnificent character. Um, the tafsir of that 
the one most immediate understanding of that was Islam itself, that God has given you a deen, a religion, a way of being a character. Um, that is magnificent and great and wonderful where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is comforting the Prophet وسلم, as he is going about making his da'wah. So Islam itself is ethics. Islam is the khuluq, the right way of being. However, as things proceeded in Islam, there are more specialized meanings that emerge. We have, when it comes to questions of um, the obligation that are given, uh, obligations that are given by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, um, they, they take the form of fiqh uh, or jurisprudence as it's called. Uh, when the Quran says to pray or to fast or to, um, you know, uh, uh, give charity, all of those things are part of what God is saying is good and uh, necessary, in fact, not just good, but it is an obligation upon you. Um, and then that obligation um, that God gives us in the Quran is attached to both this worldly happiness, but more importantly, to its reflection in the eternal, real, true life, in the salvific afterlife. So um, that's, if you will, the domain of fiqh, to know what is right, uh, what is ob an obligation, what is merely recommended. So in Islam, you don't merely have right and wrong, but rather a much more worked out categorization of every action, whether it's, you know, in the, in these famous five categories, whether something is an obligation or merely recommended or neutral um, or, or uh, disliked or, or, or prohibited. And early on, Muslim jurists came up with, uh, with the agreement, really, uh, that every human action that has a normative dimension, every human action to which we can say this ought to be done, this should be done, should not be done, has a divine answer, has a divine command attached to it, uh, and is covered, in other words, as part of the sharia. But then the question is, what is the role of uh, is there something else uh, that's remain that's remaining outside of it? And there, I think there is um, another question that fiqh um, or the question the discipline of fiqh doesn't directly address, which is: you're supposed to tell the truth. You're supposed to be kind to others. You're supposed to um, love to pray to God, or, or rather, let me take that back. You're supposed to pray to God, but how do I make those things, truthfulness, uh, prayerfulness, devotion, love, beloved to me? How can I make those things and make those things my habit so that I naturally do so, so that I enjoy doing so, so that I, uh, I love doing so, right? So how I, you know, my, my emotions also are, in line with um, what God demands. So it is that domain of uh, ethical formation of the human, of human being that is taken up in the discipline of akhlaq or adab, uh, or, you know, you have this, this genre alongside of fiqh, or in fact, in the disciplines of tazkiyah and tasawwuf, where the idea is 
It's not to discover what is right and wrong because that's been given by God. Mm-hmm. Or what's not been given by God is discovered through ijtihad uh, mm-hmm. in interaction with divine text, in interaction with, with rational understanding of the world. But rather, once I know that, how do I um, form myself in response to it so that I actually love to tell the truth, so that I actually tell the truth when it's hard to tell the truth, right? Because easy, it's easy to say to tell the truth. It's easy to say to pray, but we all know how hard it can be, for instance, to focus in your prayers. Uh, you, can be, you can do your prayers correctly in every way. Uh, in, in terms of your external behavior, you made wudu, you're, you're facing the qibla, uh, you have the right time, you know how many cycles you're supposed to offer, so on. But your heart isn't there. Uh, you don't feel the presence of God. You don't feel the love for the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, who gave us you good, his guidance. Um, you, feel, you don't feel the khushur, the sense of humility, uh, or uh, the presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How do you cultivate that? So the discipline, the disciplines of akhlaq and tazkiyah become involved in the creation of those selves uh, through proper reminders and proper sacrifices and practices and so on. Hmm. Okay, that's that's extremely significant. And uh, there's a lot to unpack there. I think I'll just like touch on a couple of things. First of all, I want to restate basically this the scheme that you just laid out so there's a difference between on one hand we have discovering what's ethically right and what's wrong okay and that's something that is much more closed off to human sort of um interpretation or human tampering or human sort of um input let's say but i want to come back to that because there might be certain things that are open to negotiation and relative or relatively relative, and then things that are absolutely fixed, right? Um, so I want—I do want to get back to that. Right. But but there is this other aspect, which is maybe we could say the production or the the inculcation of a person that's going to spontaneously produce those virtues when they're called upon in an right. ethical moment. Who's going to refuse the bribe? Who's going to walk away? from the person flirting with them? Who's going to be able to do the right thing when no one is looking, right? So this second thing that you're talking about, that has sort of like, um, uh, we can say it's more open to uh, practices that achieve results, let's just say, right. Right. Um, right. which is kind of the opening because a lot of people are confused by Tesoaf and they're confused by the idea of, well, I thought that Islam was complete the way it was. We have the Quran, we have the Sunnah, we have the understanding of the of the companions and the Salaf. There's, uh, as is commonly said, there's no goodness outside of what they brought. Right. So then, if you're going to say that, you know, five centuries later, there's Sheikh Fulan and Erlan who developed this sort of weird, for example, of either statements or particular sort of actions or whatever. That this is something that's not what they brought. And therefore, it can't have goodness in it. So what you're saying in, in, in this scheme is that we're talking about two different types of ethical concerns. We have discovering ethics on the one hand. Okay, it's like, what is what right and what is wrong? And then we have the inculcation or the cultivation of the person who's going to act ethically, that's going okay. to act according to the discovery of those ethics in the first, in the first category. And that first one is far more limited right, when it comes to uh, human input, et cetera, than the second one. 
so would you would you agree with that that my sort of uh, rendering of that first of all before i i bring it back to the first thing i would tweak it a little bit so the question sure. is whether one is not whether one is far more limited than the other because allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his messenger uh والسلام, have in fact taught us not only what is right and wrong but also how to respond to them um, but so I wouldn't say one is more limited than the other because even when it comes to our response to scripture, the intellectual response to scripture, the immediate response to obey or to not obey, or to, and if to obey, then uh, how to implement that obedience, that requires constant intellectual effort, uh, yes. even creativity um, in, in resolving problems that, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, well, go make da'wah. Right. Uh, but it was it's up to you to figure out how yes. to approach other people in the right and proper way. Um, you know, Allah says you have to be good. The best of you, the Prophet says the best of you are those who are best to their family, uh, particularly mm-hmm. their wives or their spouses. Um, but how what precisely is it that your spouse loves um, that you do, um, let's say, about your wife? Um, whether does she like flowers? Does she like surprises? Does she like you know that you take her out? Does she Love like languages? Right. Right. Yeah. So I want to get back to that because let's so let's sit there since since we got there. So if yeah. we come to that that first one, the discovery of what is ethical. Okay. So um, a lot of people, unfortunately, they have a crude conception of of sort of that aspect of of ethics. So we're saying that it's not that it's completely limited and shut off. Um, there are things that are non-negotiable, of course, right. and there are things that are negotiable. So can we delineate or help people understand which of those things are not negotiable and which are negotiable, such as the ones either you're getting at al-maslah um, al-mursala, right? Something that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or the Prophet والسلام, commands us but leaves unspecified how we are to fulfill that obligation. Then this is something that's known as, you know, the sort of burden of proof shifts to, well, we can do whatever it is that satisfies that command as long as it's not explicitly sort of prohibited. So what are all of the sort of areas that are negotiable? You mentioned culture, right? What are sort of all the areas that are negotiable and what are the things that are non-negotiable when it comes to the discovery of what is and and isn't ethical? Right. So, I think when you look at Islam and the Quran, you find that in almost every area of life, rather I would say in everything that you do as a human being and and, and as you uh, uh, encounter a normative question of whether you should do this or not, whether it's the right thing or, 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 or wrong, you have divine guidance in some form, sometimes in summary forms of when it, you know, whether it's your relationship to your family or the question of eating or drinking or, 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 or dressing you know, what, what, what you wear or, you know, your sartorial choices, your, um, you know, you could say even something that would be as modern as driving, um, right? But uh, should you follow the speed limit, for instance? Does the Sharia have anything to say about you violating speed limits such that you're going 65 uh, in a 25 zone? Uh, are you doing something wrong? And... Uh, if you, especially if you know the harm that you could cause by killing children, for instance, that are playing around, do you have a res- Sharia responsibility? Mm. Um, and you know, any faqih will tell you 
that yes, of course, and it's not merely maslaha mursala here. It's something much bigger because avoiding harm um, and avoiding situations that lead to harm uh, can be uh, much more immediate, much more urgent than that. Actually, maslaha um, mu'tabara, right? It's actually something exactly. that in this specifically, case, uh, specifically mentioned in the Quran. So it's fulfilling a Sharia principle or a Sharia goal. I guess right. So, right? And, and if you, in fact, if it is a rule or a hukum of the hakim that is a legitimate Muslim ruler, then uh, even if its rationale doesn't necessarily, you know, come as clearly as the example I gave, following that rule is like following Allah and his messenger uh, because obedience to, um, you know, a, a legitimate ruler can become part of, our responsibility. In fact, it is part of Islamic Sharia, as uh, Islam does require, right, that we order our lives in a particular way as a community and not just as individuals. So what I'm saying is that you find uh, known commandments and prohibitions in every field. And then outside of that, you have masalah mursala or unspecified goods that we are supposed to pursue. Um, but I want to say that, you know, if you look at the Quran, there are 200 mentions of just the general commandment to do good rather than saying do X, Y, and Z. So, of course, Mm -hmm. there are particular laws in the Quran, commandments in the Quran, right? Uh, Both in ibadah, worship, and say in commerce and relationships and so on and so forth. But there are 200 times when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ do good deeds. It is as if there is so much emphasis on you figuring out what is good and doing it. And this is constant in the Quran. It's almost, you know, it's part of the definition of the faithful of the believer. It's And the Amal Salih, the righteous deed, is not specified to be specifically just the commandments, but Amal Salih in general. Mm-hmm. Allah says in the Quran, So, Allah commands justice and to act charitably. In general, this is a general commandment. Um, and if you think about it, you know, it becomes therefore our responsibility under this umbrella to know what is justice, to what is just, what is fair. That there is a slight difference between uh, two words that are used in the Quran for justice, قسط, uh, which means fairness, which is fairly obvious. You give everybody equal, you know, it's clear what everybody, and adil, which is much more, more involved understanding of the right thing to do in a particular situation as God has commanded it. And Allah commands us to act in a way that is just, um, and then do more. Ihsan is more than justice, right? To to act charitably, to act in a way that is generally benevolent toward the world and all creation creation around us. So that's what what I want to say. You know, in response to your excellent question, is that um, in every domain there are known parameters, if you will. As if, and I like to use the example of like a skeleton that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us, and then we are supposed to put flesh on it uh, ourselves uh, in every field. Yeah. Excellent. No, that's 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 very uh, that's a useful way to think about it. Um, 
so I think the the second thing that I would like to get back to, by the way, I think an interesting addition is also the language that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses, al-amr bil ma'roof, right? The, the fact mm-hmm. that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala exactly. uses, we translate it in English as the good, but it, actually there's something else being communicated there. It is known good, right? Known so there's good, right. That, that degree of human um, uh, sort of ascertaining what is the good in the first place. And then in Surah Al-A'raf, when uh, sort of a little bit more further in that direction, what more bil He actually says right. like, to command right. with with what is sort of customary. Right. So it kind of is an indication that there is this, um, you know, between two extremes as usual, right? It's like we're not saying that ethics is relative and that you know everything is open season and negotiable. Obviously, that would be nonsensical. But it's also not the crude caricature that some people want to portray that you know everything is is completely determined and deterministic that there is a role to play for both human discovery of what is right and what's wrong um and also then there are certain certain cultural sensitivities or uh by of time and place as to uh, how those things are inflected maybe we could say um, right in fact um if you allow me uh, you mentioned surah al-araf which is a meccan surah uh, and which declares something really important, almost the, a, the most concise statement about the law that has been revealed to the Prophet Muhammad, the final Prophet, والسلام, uh, when in fact addressing peop- the people of the book, the followers of Moses and, 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 and also uh, Jesus, Allah says, uh, which is Allah says that the people who have been given Injil and Torah will find it in their own books about the, this imperative to obey um, this uh, messenger and prophet who is an Ummi, a Gentile, a non-Jew, who then what is his mission? What does he do? Exactly as you said, he commands them to what they know to be good by their fitra, by their nature, and prohibits them things that are strange to their nature and lifts, takes away any burden from them. Um, uh, you know, or actually, uh, as well as part of the verse that I didn't say. Uh, that he uh, makes licit for them all the things that are good and illicit all the things that are khaba'ith in their nature and takes any burdens away from them. And what this means is that sharia or the divine law that has been given through the Prophet is not arbitrary, right? As you you exactly uh, suggested, that it's ma'roof, known to be good, known to be bad. And uh, and this, this precise um, uh, question, this precise feature, a central feature of Islamic law is really important in understanding uh, Islamic ethics. This is why Islamic law and ethics are ultimately inseparable, except, you know, uh, almost for analytical purposes, we can separate them, but really they are the same thing because Allah says all the things that are command that the Prophet commands are good, uh, and there is no extra burden that's been given. 
um, that's there just for testing. In other words, Allah has the full right to command us to do anything. But all the things that Allah has in fact commanded us are those that are good for us and can be known to be good. And the ulama, of course, when you get into a little bit of theology, I'm gonna say, that's gonna open, open that can of words between the uh, the Ashaida yeah. and the yeah, right. So, yeah. but even if you even before you get into the ikhtilaf or the dis- disagreement about the nature of ethical value, uh, all ulama would recognize that you have certain actions that are ta'abudi, yes, uh, and certain actions and outside of those ibadat. Uh, all actions in when when we deal with human beings, we deal with each other, deal, deal with society, politics, culture, so on. Uh, there, the norms are uh, uh, all rational. Yes. And then, when you get to uh, certain actions, such as do not eat pork, we don't necessarily n- can we cannot reason with everything. So mm-hmm. you know, so you do have uh, cases where it may just be a test. So the ulama would say there are these three different kinds of ahkam that are given. Uh, one is just an exception. You'll find maybe one or two such things. And then ta'abudi, where you can find the reason for it, but its form is fixed. And then the rest of the sharia, the vast majority of our life, is things where its reason uh, and its legislation are intimately intertwined with each other. So that when a jurist is looking at uh, whether something is you know, haram or mubah or 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 or, or, or something, they actually are looking at uh, maqasid as well. Mm-hmm. What is the purpose mm-hmm. that pertains to uh, human the human good? Yes, yeah. And for the the listeners who are looking for the Arabic term, that's muallala, something that has a ta'lil behind it, something that has a, a rationale. Um, and it's sort of a sep- it's a separate epistemic question as to how accurately can we discern the rationale and then once identified to be able to apply it. But that's a really, really key point that you mentioned because uh, I'll always remember actually, you know, because maqasid sharia has gotten now sort of, it's become a dirty word or it's gotten a bad reputation because some people have instrumentalized the language of maqasid to really reform the sharia and obliterate it in, in, in a, in a frank sense. Um, so we have to be careful to not swing to the other extreme and uh, make it seem like this is all just um, set in stone in a way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not intend. Um, if you look, and it always amazed me, if you look into the first four khulafat, the khulafat al-Rashidin, right, you see the things that they changed from one khalifa to the next. So, um, you know, things that even were rulings at the time of the Prophet sallallahu One of the famous examples is Uthman, right? At the time of the Prophet sallallahu uh, lost camels. You know, he was asked about lost camels, alayhi salatu wasalam. The Prophet, alayhi salatu wasalam, said, well, leave them go because, you know, either the wolf's going to get them or, or their owner's going to find it. But then the situation had changed to the point in Earthman's reign where he changed that entirely. And he said, no, we're going to gather the lost camels and we're going to sort of, um, you know, sort of serve the public interest in that sort of way. And nobody came and accused Earthman of going against the guidance of the Prophet wasallam, or changing the Sharia or doing something like this because the companions in the Salaf understood that these sorts of rules and guidelines were mu'allala. They were, they were tied to a rationale right. that gave that open space that 
if the circumstance changed so that that rule no longer served that rationale, then the rule therefore couldn't change as well. Right. Um, and there's very strict rules as to the process and usul fiqh as to how to ascertain that and to apply that. And it's not open season, but you know we live in a we live in a time of polarization, and we live in a time where you've got people who want to um, you know they lean too far on one extreme and want to make everything about maqasid say, well, Islam is about justice. And then bring a very modern definition of what justice is that completely flouts the Sharia, and yes. then say, "Well, we're going to now uh, back project that onto Islam and do away with every everything that Islam uh, that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala gave us that contradicts our modern sense of justice." Well, that's very wrong. Um, right. But we also can't get drawn into the opposite extreme, which is saying that absolutely everything has to be. Um, you know, it, it's completely closed. It's a completely closed system that there's no, there's absolutely no sort of intellectual work uh, or rational work to be done when it comes to the application or prioritization or, or these sorts of things. So yes. that's, that's extremely important. Um, and I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, if you don't have any further comments on that, I did want to get back to the idea of Sufism and Tasawwuf because so we, we talked about sort of, we have the, the discovery of what is ethical on one hand. Right. And that's sort of its own project. And you did a great job of sort of showing how um, it's probably not as fixed as some people might imagine it. You know, there are there's definitely a role to play when it comes to um, maslaha or when it comes to interpretation or when it comes to figuring out, um, you know, does it serve the rationale that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala intended for it? Um, and then there's the second concern, which is the sort of cultivation of a self or the, or the production of a human individual that is going to be able to spontaneously and hopefully with some regularity act in an ethical way. Right. Um, and so um, this is sort of the, the area in which Sufism moves, right? And, and just like Maqasid, you know, Sufism gets a bad rap because right. of the sort of extreme uh, streams or, or variations of it. But maybe you could talk a little bit about the what is that area, that acceptable area of the Sharia when it comes to developing the ethical self and harnessing that ability to spontaneously produce ethical action that renders the at least the idea of Sufism as something that's that's legitimate. Right. So let me first make a, a small comment about the Maqasid. Um, as you uh, correctly pointed out, it has been unmoored uh, from principles and usul al-fiqh, unfortunately, whereas in classical um, fiqh, it was merely a tool to guide uh, usul al-fiqh where there you could not reach, where it was not determinative enough. In other words, if you couldn't figure out there were more than one answers and there was clearly one that led to improvement of Islamic principle or Islamic goals um, and, and others weren't, but textually you can arrive at any of those solutions, then the solution that led to the protection of these five categories were preferred. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, when you look at Shatibi, uh, rahimahullah, or, or even Ibn Ashur, uh, rahimahullah, who, in my view, was just as much of a giant um, as any uh, medieval uh, giant, uh, um, or even though he died in uh, 1930 only. Um, and they were talking about a much more, a very principled enterprise uh, that is attached to usul al-fiqh in the Quran and the Sunnah and, and that recognizes that human beings can, there's no open season, as you say. 
um, but if you look at the maqasid itself, um, the very, what's the first maqasid? The first purpose of the sharia is hifl al-din. And what you find often is that that discourse itself, if taken seriously and uh, rigorously, rather than used as an excuse to get out of stuff, it says the first priority is the protection of deen over life, right? Um, and so that's why uh, you, there are sometimes you sacrifice yourself to protect the deen, right? That's a most uh, meritorious act in Islam. In fact, in any religion that takes itself seriously, we, we look at patriots, for example, we consider them the highest form of citizenship because they are giving their life for an ideal that is moral and ethical. So um, often when I talk to you know people who are doing maqasid in the way that you're recommending or you are critiquing, um, that most fundamental uh, uh, consideration is lost, right? So maqasid becomes life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness almost, mm -hmm. whereas if they simply paid attention to what they are saying themselves, um, they will know that protection of the deen, the truth, in which there is the maslaha of everything and for everyone, because God knows best, uh, then you wouldn't have this problem. So it's, in my view, uh, much of the problem is the application of the Maqasid discourse under circumstances where um, the institutions as well as epistemological conditions such as the knowledge of Usul al-Fiqh and so on have, um, uh, have suffered greatly. But going back to your uh, question, as you said, there is the question, Fiqh is about primarily about discovery of right and wrong. Um, and then there is the question of embodiment or inculcation. And I have identified akhlaq as belonging to that category of embodiment. So how to, in fact, make it a habit to do good things. Now, I would say akhlaq and tasawwuf are complementary. Uh, now, even when I use the word tasawwuf, I am simply, I should say that I'm simply using a common understanding, not an academically or historically rigorous understanding. Because the Sawwuf, as a discourse, as a name and a movement, emerged in the 3rd century of Hijra, or 9th century. Um, and um, it emerged as one of many Tazkiya movements in Islam. There were other movements, say, for example, in Khurasan, uh, the Malamatiya movement, you know, in Baghdad, you had the Sufis, uh, and elsewhere, and before even the Sufis, you had, you know, Bakka'un, Musak, and other traditions, Qurra. These were all names for particular traditions that were local to various places that were trying to do what we are calling this general embodiment. Or let me call it Tazkiyah as a more general uh, word for it, because that's a Quranic word, Tazkiyah, purification, right? Um, but... Sufism, because it was in Baghdad, and Baghdad was the center of the world at the time, it gave its name to the entire phenomenon of Tazkiyah in Islam. So in other words, it's kind of like Kleenex. When you say, bring me Kleenex, it's, it's a particular brand, but you know you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So um, let me talk about Tazkiyah in general. Tazkiyah and Akhlaq are 
complementary. Both are about embodiment, but akhlaq pertains in the way it has just, uh, evolved uh, in Islamic history. Akhlaq is about uh, relationship between human beings and between human beings and God's creation, whereas tazkiyah is applied to the relationship between the self and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the creator of the self. Um, but even this boundary is not maintained. Uh, so, for example, some of the more famous definitions of tazkiyah and of tasawwuf, uh, you'll find that uh, these scholars will say tasawwuf is nothing but akhlaq. And the more you have akhlaq, the better you have, the better you are in terms of tazkiyah. So that many ulama considered uh, or, or practitioners of tasawwuf considered uh, tasawwuf to be concerned primarily with akhlaq, both with respect to God's creation and, and God. So this is a, something about terminology so that we get it, we get the terminology straight. When I use the word tasawwuf and tazkiyah sometimes interchangeably, I'm kind of doing what people do with Kleenex. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though, and the reason it's important to, to know is that some of the main um, authorities that are referred to in the discourse of the Sawwuf uh, never used the word Sawwuf or they used it almost negatively. But they became incorporated as great masters of the Sawwuf. You know, for example, um, Abu Talib al-Makki in his Qut al-Qulub which is the model for of Imam al-Ghazali, right? Imam al-Ghazali effectively, uh, you know, was inspired to write his book uh, because of this wonderful, uh, insightful book, Qut al-Qulub, Nourishment of the Hearts by Abu Talib al-Makki, who does not refer to the Sawwuf except a couple of times, and both times as uh, people who are making arbitrary claims. But later he becomes known as, uh, you know, the, the great Sufi, um, so my point is that we should keep this in mind historically that Tasawwuf is a particular Tazkiyah movement of Baghdadi brand that emerges in the third century. And then it has its um, uh, critics. And those critics are sometimes the best of its authorities. And so much so that some of the great Sufis famously said that uh, Tasawwuf is now a name without a reality at the time of Rasulullah, it was a reality without a name. So we should not get um, bogged down, I believe, with um, with a particular evaluation of whether of the sawuf, um, unless we specify which specific branch of the sawuf we are talking about, and, and so on. Now, of course, there are certain things historically that became very popular when, when established in the domain of the sawuf. Um, much of that was actually quite later, late medieval developments. Early Tsawwuf was very different. Early Tsawwuf, the third, fourth, fifth centuries, was much more intellectual, one might even say elitist, uh, not tariqas and um, the emphasis on, particularly the emphasis on the shrines, for example, which in later Tsawwuf becomes quite significant, is not there in early Tsawwuf. So early Sawuf is much more about this, one might say in modern terms, the, psycho- the psychology of the, the relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and with the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now in that process, the Sawuf uh, or practitioners of this tazkiyah, some of which get called the Sawuf or Sufis later, 
discover insights about what we do when we are talking about Allah and when we are, you know, relating to other human beings. Uh, Al-Muhasibi, for example, uh, a contemporary of Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, uh, rahimahumullah, uh, was known for this kind of insight of self-evaluation and self-critique and muhasaba, as it's called. So much so that his name came to be Al-Muhasibi. Um, but sometimes those insights were uh, useful and good, and uh, they really reflected some of the shortcuts that people were taking. Um, and sometimes they were uh, overdone. To give you one example, just so that we, we understand that even within the area of the Sawwuf, Sharia is still the, the, the master. Right, it's it's the God's command. Um, Al Muhasibi, rahimahullah, for example, uh, wrote a book, Riayat, uh, or or consideration of one's inner states when praying. And when people read that book, it was so strict, it was so insightful, but perhaps overly critical, that the ulama say that the masjid, the masajid of Baghdad, became empty when people read that book because people lost hope in their ability to actually worship Allah. They thought they were just worshiping themselves. You know, they're all distracted. Their prayers are not worth it. People lost hope. And the ulama then critiqued uh, Imam al-Muhasibi that, you know, there is a proper way of doing it and, and, and that uh, one should understand the nafs, human nafs with its imperfections and so on and so forth. My point is simply to say that just because something is in the domain of tazkiyah uh, or tasawwuf doesn't mean that it is above uh, critique by the considerations of the sharia. Yes, no, that's that's a really essential point. And, and just to, I think, just shine that light on the area that legitimate tasawwuf or tazkiyah occupies within the sharia is kind of getting to things that we mentioned earlier about Yes, like observing insights that adhere to uh, the Sharia right. and then basically trying to collect those insights and maybe benefit others by them like exactly. that in and that in and of itself. Right. Because in fact, you have to deal with the phenomenon in and of itself before you deal with the iterations. Right. If somebody wants to talk about, um, you know, Sufism or to so you don't immediately go to the most extreme uh, shrine worshiping sort of example, right? You have to deal with the the idea of it, right? Um, and the idea of it, I think, to elucidate to the audience, that's the idea of it. Um, and the idea of it is is sound that you can you can observe things about. Well, when do human beings tend to show off? Um, and what can we do to stop ourselves from showing off? Like when I'm giving charity. Even these days, we have lots of things on social media, people militating against, you know, um, being too, um, you know, spectacle oriented when it comes to giving and charity. They don't want you don't you shouldn't be recording yourself or going live necessarily um, this sort of showmanship that can get into it. We do this work already where we're right. we're, we're noticing things um, about our internal states that right. are from the Sharia. And we're holding ourselves accountable to them and we're sharing them with others so that we can sort of benefit from the collective observance and right. wisdom of other people. 
So that's kind of, I think, just to elucidate to the audience, that's that's the legitimate grounds upon which it, it stands. And Absolutely. Then, and yeah. if I may just elaborate on what you said, because I think it is a question that I get um, asked. If the Sawuf did not emerge, something else would have. It would have been called something different. Why? Because the imperative to love Allah, to worship Allah, and to, to worship Allah as if you see him, right? Just take that commandment that's so central, it's in Hadith Jibreel, um, to worship Allah as if you see him. Well, should should Muslims not sit together and talk about what does it mean? You know, I feel I feel as if I worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as if I see him, I, see, I feel that presence under certain circumstances, but not other circumstances. Like when I'm over full with food, I don't feel that way, it's harder. Or when I, you know, when for instance, I feel like when I'm in front of other people, I don't feel that way, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? These are insights that are just, uh, you know, inevitably Muslims, as they go into practice Islam, they're going to collect it. And the better they deal with those insights, um, the better their practice is going to be. Um, I, I should also say that uh, not all of those traditions that looked into these questions, are, again, are known as the Sawuf. Uh, before the Sawuf, the ulama were discussing those things. Um, it, there is a discipline of zuhud, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were books written under the name of zuhud, which suggest and inculcate in, in human beings, prepare in human beings, a certain attitude toward the world. Um, similarly, you had other traditions like malamathiyah that I mentioned and the hikmah tradition and so on. So all of these traditions... Uh, you know, there are various disciplines that are, if so long as they're trying to do this tazkiyah that is shari, the ulama generally embraced it. Mm. And yeah. when they overstep their boundaries, the ulama provide, provided critiques for it. Yes, that's excellent. Yeah, even with the, at the level of insight, right? Because somebody could say, well, I feel like I'm closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when I'm doing X prohibited action. And that's where we have the Sharia to be the guardrails, basically, of, of those sorts of insights. Yeah. Um, excellent. I'd like to go back to something that we, we said earlier and use it as a launch pad to a different vein of conversation. We talked about, you know, you eloquently stated about how Islam is ethics. There, it, there really is no sort of separation. Now, um, that is somewhat counterintuitive to the modern disposition, especially in the English language, because of historical shifts that have happened. Right. So let's talk about what do ethics for most people represent today? What is the place of ethics in modern society? And how is it different from the place of ethics, uh, if we can even talk about it in that language, when it comes to Islam? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question, really wonderful. And I'll, I'll answer it in two um in two veins. First, uh, what has happened right in, in the modern period? And then secondly, whether we should use this discourse on ethics in an Islamic context. So first, um, in with the rise of secularism, the question of good and evil have become purely rational since right, the enlightenment and the Kantian, if you will, uh, ethics. And, and, and ever since people think uh, that reason is sufficient to determine 
what is right and what is wrong, and not only what is right and wrong, but how the, our attitude toward right and wrong. So, for example, uh, there are various theories of how we should look at this idea of right and wrong. For example, for Kant, we look we must look at those things as duty, something that we must not enjoy. In fact, the more we enjoy good, the more questionable it becomes. Because enjoyment and habitus and our habit and inclination have nothing at all to do with this universal imperative. Whereas when you look at Greek ethics, Aristotle and, 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 and so on, the idea there was to, culc- uh, to, in, you know, to inculcate uh, habits so that we love, we like to do certain things that are good and enjoyable. So that we have very different notions of ethics, all, all outside of Islam, but we could look at them as Muslims and engage with those questions you know, without feeling that we're doing something wrong or extra Islamic, uh, so long as we understand uh, the Sharia. And in this vein, I have, you know, in the articles that I've published uh, at Yaqeen, the last two articles, I have tried to say that Islam looks at these various traditions and has an alternative. The Islamic way of looking at ethics is looking through the model of the Prophet ﷺ. That's why I call it prophetic ethics. Uh, it's a prophet. It's an. It's a model. Uh, it's not merely the idea of uh, some universal truths with with which you know your person is not involved, as Kant would say, or some uh, habits uh, and character formation or virtue ethics, as it's called. But it's something different. Something a third category in which prophets, not just Muhammad but all prophets, are the role models. And why are they the role models? Because they embody the first commandment of life, of existence, la ilaha illallah, and uh, Muhammad rasulullah the first, second part, historically, you know, of course, uh, as ours, but any messenger. Uh, believing that messenger, submitting to that messenger, that becomes the first and foremost imperative. If you asked, if you sat down with Ibrahim salam or Musa salam or Isa salam and asked them, you know, this is your religion, this is your ethics, they would simply not know what you're talking about. So it would be impossible because God is telling them what is good, right? Um, and in that sense, the separation of religion from ethics uh, is quintessentially secular. What I mean to say is that that's what secularism is. Mm-hmm. It's not one of the things that secularism proposes, but rather secularism is this radical move that says you can be good without God. And Uh, I have to interject there. It makes possible the question that is on so many people's minds. What about so-and-so? They were a good person, but they didn't have a religion or they rejected God or et cetera, et cetera. And what you're saying implies that that question only becomes possible to even ask after secularism has done its work, right? Is that that question is literally nonsensical. It's a contradiction in terms if we go before secularism or from a, a truly Islamic frame. Absolutely. One thing that I should say is that this does not mean that people who are not exposed to Islam, um, they're not good. They cannot be good. Not at all. In fact, the Prophet ﷺ would recognize people's good traits among non-Muslims as well. In fact, he would say that people are like, uh, you know, ma'adin. They're like uh, oars um, that are good before Islam are good in Islam. In, in other words, Islam 
is a normative frame that builds on uh, the character that exists. Um, and uh, so this is not to say that good cannot exist outside, but rather all the good that exists even outside of Islam, right? People who don't know about Islam, um, they must wrestle with the question of life, of where life came from. Um, and maybe their answer was flawed, but they were sincere vis-a-vis that answer. And if that were the case, or at least if they were sincere vis-a-vis asking that question, right, they should be. And as soon as they hear that there is a prophet, there is one God, that's something so, you know, in their fitrah, in their nature, it must resonate. And they must, they have this, then this duty to respond to something that, you know, now I have to look into the, the message, the final message that God has sent me. Uh, and if they're not doing so, then it's possible that they were never sincere in asking that question, uh, that they weren't truly ethical, that their ethics may simply be utilitarian or self-serving or maybe socially oriented and so on. Um, so in that sense, the idea is not that, you know, you cannot be good outside of Islam, but rather we believe that people have goodness. That's precisely why people are coming to Islam. People recognize Islam, even though they don't grow up as Muslims. And in fact, I believe, you know, I know that people have very deep and sometimes very, uh, very fundamental critiques of Western society. Um, I take a more, what I might call a moderate position, because I believe that in so far as people are experiencing life, even under false paradigms, their fitra is bursting forth, their nature and their desire for God is bursting forth, even in these interactions. So they're looking for what is good. And, and therefore, and sometimes you find articulations of that, you know, you read fiction, you find people are looking for truth, what is good, right? And they find Islam sometimes by looking at the way somebody's praying, it's the way somebody's wearing hijab or the way somebody's treating their parents, um, you know, and, and some, sometimes the simplicity and the beauty, uh, the truth of the aqidah, uh, the basic principle of Islam itself. And that's why I think that um, it's it's really important to recognize the goodness that exists while also being fully confident in saying that ethics needs Islam, that you cannot really have the idea of um, the idea of ethics outside of God who created the world by rejecting that God uh, or by neglecting the guidance from that God mm. is uh, is incoherent. It's it's like rejecting the fundamental commandment. You could still be good and ethical in the way that a band of thieves could be very good at stealing, right? In a society, you could say that you the people are very good ethical uh, thieves. Um, they share, you know, they're they're very good at their skill. They share their loot very well, but by the standards of the society, they are uh, thieves. They are uh, taking people's property. And by both by religious and, and uh, conventional standards, they're doing something really wrong. In the same way, we can identify wonderful skills of a society um, or, or a collection of human beings anywhere, families, societies, that have so many good qualities. But insofar as they have abandoned the fundamental task of, for which life is created, uh, they are still responsible. MashaAllah. 
extremely well worded. It, it's almost like uh, criminal neglect. You know, the, the legal term is kind of what, what I come back to. You know, everybody has a duty to sort of uh, wrestle with these questions, especially the fundamental gratitude. I think that's that's really very easy for lots of people to understand. You, you have to wrestle with that. And if you abandon that quest, uh, you know, it's very different from trying to grapple with it and getting it wrong. Right to abandon the quest for for to try to find out how to be grateful is in itself and a very fundamentally sort of unethical thing. Yeah. Um, yes. You did now. I if you, I, I can get to the second part of the question, sure. but I want your reflections if you if you have any others first. No, no, I'm re- I'm ready for for your part two. So the second part, remember, I said that I'll talk about whether we need. Uh, ethics uh, or the talk about ethics or this discipline of ethics now. And I believe that we need it in the same way that we need disciplines about teskia, meaning for practical purposes. And the reason for that is that fiqh or Islamic jurisprudence, as it has become uh, established and, and institutionalized and often routinized practice, you find that uh, people uh, take fiqh and box it in a certain category. Um, and they don't draw out the full implications of what it means to obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so the ethical discourse that focuses on, you know, how to pray properly or how to relate to other human beings properly and how to cultivate those habits uh, is still important. In fact, one might even say it's necessary to develop now in the modern in the modern world because just as the fuqaha, the jurists, are going back to the texts and uh, and the and the traditions, the madahim, um, and in doing so, they are they're somewhat limited. By, in the way they operate, precisely because it's a very rigorous method. Uh, to give you an example, I'll give you first a basic example. The question of prayer, a faqih, I remember my usul al-fiqh teacher was an azhari, khair, um, he would tell me that I know everything about usul al-fiqh, he read every book, you know, he's thought in terms of language, in terms of usul, but he said when it comes to khushua, when it comes to uh, you know, questions of love and emotion, don't ask him because he doesn't know anything. He wasn't at all saying that this they are important. He was in fact they're saying he was saying they are important, but you have to seek out somebody else who has developed that, who knows enough that they can direct and help others in those uh in that domain. Um, so th- this kind of you know specialty does develop. Um, and so uh, there is one specific reason or, or, or objections that people often make, which is that, you know, somebody can be uh, pious in the fiqhi sense. So they're doing the right things. They're, they're trying to avoid haram, but they are not good, that they're not good persons. Is it possible? Well, you could answer that question by saying, well, no, it's not impossible. They're not doing the fiqh right. Or you could answer the following by saying, um, yes, they're doing the externalities of fiqh correctly, but there are some parts that are missing that are 
you know, better discussed and, and grown out in this other discourse. And I think that that's really still very important. Right? So people, Islamic, you know, these days you find people um, emphasizing uh, ethics or akhlaq, whether it's on in, in, in the domain of fiqh and hadith, and pointing out this, their frustration with uh, legalistic Islam. And I think that we should not dismiss their concerns, even though conceptually you could answer them by saying that just as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded praying five times a day, Allah has commanded, in fact, even more so praying with khushua, praying with presence. Uh, and Allah has commanded doing adil and ihsan. But that person may come back to you and say, well, tell me which manual of fiqh will I learn that stuff in? Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't find it there. Similarly, take the example of marriage. Um, the fiqhi discussions of marriage are infamously uh, dry because mm -hmm. they are concerned with the questions of when, when marriages are breaking down, when marriages are not breaking down, when they're working according to Islam's imperatives and according to urf and everybody is happy. Nobody uh, mentions, uh, you know, mahr. Give me, this is my dowry, right? Uh, dowry is mentioned, or at least uh, the akhar part of the dowry would be mentioned or things like that when things are not going well. So um, you need an ethics, an akhlaq of marriage, uh, of marital life, marital behavior, mu'amala, that it cannot be found in the conditions on what the husband owes, what the wife owes. But those conditions, that knowledge is very important. That's the structure, right? If it's not there, if the husband uh, fails to do his part and the wife fails to do her part, uh, then uh, being nice, being kind, being loving is not going to be enough. Those things are going to break down. Um, and so both are necessary, but I think that we can... Uh, we don't need to dismiss the modern concerns with akhlaq. Um, but we should still say that sometimes a modern concern with ethics comes without proper knowledge of what Islamic ethics was. Because it comes with almost a condemnation of fiqh as legalistic, as if law is bad, like almost a Christian attitude toward law uh, that is very much part of our uh, modern world, which is really created by a, an ex-Christian, formerly Christian civilization. So we are, we're, we're left with its remnants and signposts everywhere. Mm. And often people who consider themselves free thinkers or, you know, freedom and uh, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, Muslim who intellectual, they are simply uh, washed up copies of some Christian thinker of 18th, 19th century, uh, mm. thinking that they're saying something new. Um, and that's because they don't know their tradition very well. They don't know that they are simply repeating um, some, some Protestant uh, critique of Catholicism or vice versa, some Catholic mm -hmm. critique of Protestantism, um, thinking that somehow they came up with it. It's fascinating. I'm not sure if you've had a chance to, to look at my forthcoming paper on perennialism, but I go into just that. So I'm excited if you haven't yet to... Uh... Give me some feedback on that. That's one of the things uh, that that is discussed in that paper. 
Um, it's extremely, I don't think that can be overstated when it comes to living in North America, the Anglosphere, how much is in the ether when it comes to reactions to Christianity and Christian structures and Christian concepts. We, we're still very much drowning in the wake of Europe and Euro-America's reaction to, to Christianity. Um, and it, it colors so much of how even now we as Muslims are reacting to our faith. And that's a, that's a huge can of worms, um, but per, perhaps for, for uh, a, separate, a separate conversation. I wanted to, uh, if you'll permit me to get into some particular, um, there's two things on my mind, um, and it, it segues sort of to the, the, the last thing that I'd like to discuss today, which has to do with ethical knowledge. I think one of the ways uh, in which ethics has been divorced from modern society in a way that it wasn't traditionally in Islam and also in other traditions is the concept of, of ethical knowledge. You know, we have the paradigmatic hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Uh, which is actually a dua, which is, you know, Allahumma alimna ma yanfa'una wa anfa'na bima alamtana wa zidna ilman, you know, which is is absolutely just, uh, it just floors me when you think about the wisdom that is packed into this short dua, because, you know, we're asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to teach us beneficial knowledge, which is an implicit recognition that there is knowledge which does not benefit, that is inherently non-beneficial knowledge. Yeah. And then, and then allow us to benefit from even the beneficial knowledge. Okay, so that means that even if you take beneficial knowledge, yeah. there is a, an ethical way to interact with it, and there yeah. is an unethical way to interact with it. And then after those two concerns are sorted out, then we ask for quantity, right? So we don't put quantity at the front of the equation and say, well, I just need, let's just accumulate knowledge, which in our modern context, it feels like that's really what a lot of folks are doing. They're just the, accumu the, the sort of frantic and directionless accumulation of information and knowledge without a concern for the, the quality and the direction of knowledge. So I get peppered with, with questions all the time about particular cases, whether it comes to, um, you know, testing things on animals right or or uh, the use of pesticides or, or gmos even things like um you know we have chemical and atomic weapons and then very pertinent to recent developments is ai what is it you get the sense living in in 2023 in north america that it's just a ball rolling down the hill right you, recently there was a couple of tech folks that came together and signed some sort of thing asking for the the stuff on ai to be halted or at least temporarily but you don't get the sense that it's really going to do much you really kind of get the sense that there we're we're kind of um animated by the spirit of if it can be done it should be done um yeah. and i want to ask your take on first of all how can islamic ethics or Islam in general, if that is redundant, solve this issue perhaps? And what would it, all of these sorts of phenomena look like? Is, it, is, there, is there a case to be made in Islam for testing things on animals or is that something that's categorically unethical? The same thing with AI, the same thing with atomic weapons. Like, How do we make sense of these things within a, a truly Islamic frame? Yeah, so this is, I mean, the question that you asked is, I would say, um, really, really profound. And, and I will split it into two questions. I don't think I can answer those questions with any kind of satisfaction. 
but at least I can say there are two questions in my mind. One is the question of what we ought to do um, and what, what in, in light of what is driving this, uh, let's say, late modern capitalist uh, civilization. Um, and then there is the question of a more fundamental question of why has Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala given human beings capacities that are so self-destructive? In other words, why has God given us the rope, enough rope to hang ourselves with? I mean, that itself is a metaphysical question, right? But we know, you know, to, to respond to or to, to reflect on the second question first, we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has done that. That Allah has placed a tree in Adam's heaven that he's not supposed to eat from. But also, it is part of the qadr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he will eat from it. And then he'll have to find a way to repent. That curiosity will get the cat. This is the nature of human beings. So um, on the second question, I would simply say that um, that's part of Allah's power and mystery, and uh, that's infinite, that's beyond our understanding. Why is a nuclear bomb possible? As somebody who studied physics since my childhood, uh, I've always asked this question. You know, why, why is it that it was possible to create a weapon that is so fundamentally, so deeply destructive, indiscriminate? Um, but the same is true of one could ask, you know, if one reduces the question to why is it possible to make weapons? If Allah had not revealed, sent down iron, which was really the, the revolution in the world that made possible far greater uh, strength and, and therefore um, the creation of armies and, and creation of, of, of weapons and swords and things that are much harder than, um, uh, than uh, earlier, uh, the, the kind of metals one finds in earlier history, uh, in, in earlier human history, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has something to say about, right, about that in Surah Al-Hadith. وَأَنزَلْنَا الْحَدِيدَ that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created, sent down hadid. Um, and Iron Age came out of that, right? So it is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as if Allah is referring to this, you know, at least that's how I see it as a historian, that Allah is referring to the dawn of Iron Age when far weapons of far greater reach are possible. And then why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala send down hadid, uh, iron? Um, because to test us. Who will obey Allah and who will be on Allah's side and, and who will not? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, softened iron for Dawood alayhi salam, gave him the capacity to, uh, to use it. So it seems to me that wrestling with this terrible might that is self destructive is very much part of the imperative that God has given us. Um, And this is always a disruptive phenomenon, meaning that you can never come up with a peaceful, loving system that is pious and righteous 
and expect that somebody will not discover that might that will end that system and somebody and then you'll have to struggle again that's just the nature of of of, of how allah has created this world it is not supposed to be perfect here um but i i don't know these reflections they're neither here nor there nevertheless uh, but to your first question i would say these modern technologies ai for example um they are very much uh, driven by a civilization that has the intellectual and spiritual maturity of a 2-year-old with a machine gun and i don't think that we should necessarily blame the machine guns as i said uh you know my first reflection i do wonder why it is possible to create machine guns nevertheless it's the real question becomes can we grow up and can we take this enormous power from the hands of the 2 year old and that i think is what we ought to be thinking about as human beings and as muslims mm-hmm. like that's the idea that can we order the world in a way that is more properly deeply islamic mm-hmm. so that we can at least negotiate with the 2 year old with a machine gun because that's what the western civilization is today i think you know when i think about islam's potential as a force in in north america and and in europe you know the one word that i keep coming back to is redemption i think that you know there's a lot of of lessons um and lessons doesn't get at it really at the the structural sort of quality of what islam has to teach the world and i almost feel sometimes as if islam is the world's last hope like yes we know in some sense that it's a doomed endeavor in the ultimate sense that the day of judgment has to happen we know all these sorts of horrible things are going to happen yes but we also have the hadith uh, that says that if you have you know the the sapling in your hand the day of judgment is being established then you plant the sapling right. and so it feels like you know if there's any sort of force that is still intact somewhat in the world that has not lost sort of its dedication its structural dedication to ethics it would be islam um, that is that is willing to rein in the pursuit of knowledge under a regime of ethical principles and and be able to shut the door or to not eat from the tree right if anybody's going to be able to instruct humanity how to not eat from the tree in the garden then it would be islam and the muslims so or at least you know, you know i guess i'm less optimistic than than you are I think that Islam is there to teach us how to make tauba. Mm. Because somebody is going to eat from the tree. Right. Yeah. How to find a way back. No, no, that's 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 interesting. That I I need to think about that more. But it does take us to sort of where I wanted to end this conversation uh with with which has to do with the production of knowledge and specifically what we're doing at Yakin Institute. Now, you are um the editor in chief and how long have you you been in your role with with Yakin Institute? Oh, it's been about a year and a half. Okay, so so not very long. So tell us okay, uh give give us a sense as to what is the process in place currently if, you know, I'm I'm writing a paper right now, okay? That a paper has to go on the journey that a paper has to traverse in order to get published with Yakin Institute as as it stands now um 
So let me, I guess, let me say something about coming in to Yakin, what I, a vision that I had, mm. of what Yakin can do. Um, when I came in, I was already very much enamored by the wonderful people, the leadership, which, and it was already run as perhaps uh, the best Muslim organization that I've been part of, and I've been part of a few. Um, and very much the spirit of Yakin and the deeply Islamic culture um, and these deeply Islamic concerns were inspiring for me, and and that's what won me over. And 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 I decided to really set aside some of my other academic endeavors at the time and, and join Yakin uh, as editor in chief. Now, my vision for Yakin was to produce beautiful. Defense, Mawada Hasana, and Jidal that is beautiful. Uh, you know, being at home with uh, with modern human being and the problems of modern human beings, not not accepting them, but this uh, being at home with guiding people rather than um, you know either talking down to people or alienating them from Islam, talking to them in a way that is beautiful. Uh, grounded and, and those things are, are difficult to to fine tune to get everything right. So how does the process work? We, uh, in fact, more recently, one of the things that I want to do, inshallah, going forward, is invite people to Yakin's kitchen of how stuff is cooked, um, and inshallah, going forward, we may be publishing something about that of how do we come up with topics. So basically, a bunch of as uh, researchers from different fields, uh, some Islamic studies, some um, you know social sciences, um, uh, imams, ulama, traditionally trained shiu, get together in a room and say, well, what are the most urgent problems that are facing the Muslim community? How have, have things changed since last year, and what do we need to focus on this this year? Uh, once we have a framework of what are the topics that we feel need to be uh, covered, and we feel that on the basis of uh, more rigorous database work than any other Muslim or Dawah organization I know of, it's still a feeling. But we look at the data, we collect data about what people are asking questions about, what people are struggling with, people write to us, and so on. Um, we have, of course, um, I believe we are the only organization we have a data. Um, uh, department which which surveys and looks at what Muslims are thinking. So that's an important part of our method and increase, going forward, inshallah, that's going to play a greater role. We really want to know in a more systematic way what is it that Muslims and you know, different kinds of Muslims are wrestling with. Because sometimes when you go out, go on social media, depending on the friends that you have made, you are in a bubble and you think that that's what everybody's worried about. We don't know that your Facebook or Twitter or what, what have you, it is targeting you so that you will make more clicks based on the clicks that you have made. It has you figured out and you think that you have the world figured out. Mm -hmm. So we want to break that. And this means sometimes people are offended uh, because they think that we should be covering only what's in their bubble. Um, but that said, um, 
let's say we have our topics laid out. You know, for instance, this last year, one of the fundamental topics that came up was the integrity of family and community in the wake of both uh, extremism from left, from the left and the right in, in American culture. And um, going deeper into Islamic traditional uh, resources to offer guidance that makes sense, um, that inspires, that's beautiful, that's compelling, that's sagacious. Um, once we have those topics figured out, we, um, you know, we can put out a call. We are also monitoring. We are receiving um, um, sometimes out of the blue submissions, but more often it's through networking. We will reach out to certain people, like in, in, the, in one case, for example, we reached out to you to write the paper about perennialism, for instance, um, because you know someone who knows someone, and, and we said, you know what, Imam Tom, we saw this YouTube, we saw his lecture, this writing, he has the qualifications, let's, let's get him on board. So that's sort of how it works, these three, three mechanisms. We may produce something internally, um, uh, or to reach out based on our needs, or just receive submissions from outside. Um, and But our, we are quite demanding, and that's something that sometimes people have complained of, and we're working to make that process more and more streamlined. Uh, we recognize that our uh, review, you know, is some, you know, it's, it goes through multiple review process. I, I edit a, a, an academic journal, and I have published in academic journals, I can, I can say with confidence that our review process is far more rigorous, far more rigorous than any academic journal. Academic journals just tend to reject, whereas we tend to work with authors. And that's what, it, you know, it makes, um, uh, makes the, because we are invested in not only publishing good stuff, but we are invested in authors. So we want to work with authors and hope that they can come back to us now that they have learned how to write for us. So in our, uh, speaking of the kitchen, what are the three main ingredients that we look for um, when we are baking our cake? First is uh, academic rigor, uh, knowledge of the subject matter, expertise. Second is the value alignment. We're looking for people who are committed to Islam, who have yaqeen. Um, we believe, if you don't have it, you cannot give it. And that's one of the changes that I have uh, encouraged at yaqeen, that people ought to be able to speak as Muslims uh, in a way that's beautiful and, and rigorous and, and, and broad. Nevertheless, it's passionately Muslim. People should be comfortable declaring their commitment, their commitment to Allah and the messenger and the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to Islamic tradition. So value alignment. The third thing is that even most people who may have value alignment or um, have academic rigor, but they may not have the tone right. Right? So they, in their heart, they want to, uh, to, to address some misunderstandings about Islam that are out there. They have the expertise, but they don't know how to talk to uh, Muslims. Um, and uh, often that's something that we, um, we work on quite a bit. 
So these are the three ingredients that have to go into a Yakin paper. Uh, academic expertise, uh, value alignment, and then the proper tone to be able to speak to the masses. Because we are basically saying, we, we're, we're demanding quite a bit. We're demanding good research, but um, and often we require uh, familiarity with uh, and research, uh, published research on the subject matter in Arabic and in English, when we can get that, um, and sometimes other languages. Uh, and in, in the West, that is non-Muslim academic as well as Islamic academic. So we require quite a bit, as, and, uh, depending on the, the, the nature of the subject matter. Um, value alignment, right? People should feel comfortable with uh, declaring themselves to be Muslims. Uh, and that's something that I have been also encouraging academics, Muslim academics, that you have to contribute to Islam, to Islamic tradition deliberately rather than writing in the same way that people are writing before. Your advisors who are non-Muslims, they were writing as outsiders and you sort of take up, take on their style or the style of people that you like and you be become based basically their copies. And I'm saying even to academics not writing for Yaqeen uh, as Muslims, you have to write as Muslims, become part of Islamic discursive tradition. Um, the third thing, as I said, is you have to be able to give effectively give a khutbah based on research, right? You have to be able to talk to broad Muslims who are looking for faith. They may have doubts. They certainly have doubts. They have questions, um, but they also share Iman and Yaqeen. So those cover, and, and you mentioned a really, I, I'm going to kind of, I think, end on the, the idea of the changes that you have made and what you've seen before and after. But before that, you know, you mentioned um, the actual process of, of review and peer review. How many eyes have to see it? Who's involved? Like, like, like give us just a little bit more clarity on who are the people that are giving the the AOK -okay or the green light to a particular paper before it gets published? So you could say there are three levels of review. The first one is editorial review. I and my editorial team, Dr. Julio, um, uh, we and uh, any uh, department uh, heads, uh, if it falls in you know one of the departments, um, take a quick look at it. Usually I'm the first one. I um, and, and then based on the subject matter, we do a quick editorial review. We decide whether it's it can move, move forward or not. Um, if it can move forward, then it is sent to two blind reviewers. Those it's a double blind double blind process. So right, the reviewers don't know who the author is, and the author doesn't know who the reviewers were. Um, and that takes, of course, quite a bit of time because finding qualified reviewers and uh, uh, takes time, and then they have their own limitations of time and whatnot. So that, and then there is a process of, uh, we have ulama uh, on our team who will look at the Islamic content. We'll look at the Hadith references, Quranic references, the translations. Um, and um, they will, depending on the expertise, they will do a check on uh, orthodoxy check, if you will. So these are the three process, uh, three layers of review that any paper goes through. And then um, sometimes uh, one could say there is a fourth layer, 
um, which is less review but more uh, rewriting, where we, we may find, for example, that the content is wonderful, but the writing doesn't flow. So we have a ghost writing uh, uh, phase where we have, alhamdulillah, very, very competent um, uh, authors, writers who will take your, uh, uh, you know, depending on how much work you need. Um, and they will rephrase, sometimes they will rearrange, try to keep your voice as much as possible and the knowledge. So those are the four layers uh, of, of review and correction that any uh, article goes through. I see. Very good. Um, and so, okay, so to go back, you know, you mentioned that you've made changes, okay, and um, there have been, I think, other changes probably outside of you from before you joined the Akin team and after. Could you give us a sense, what was sort of, um, what was Yakin as an organization doing before your arrival? Uh, how did it understand itself? What was its mission? And how has that changed since you've joined? And how has you joining been a deliberate part of that change? Okay. So Yakin was born in the era of insane Islamophobic attacks where Muslims felt that there wasn't anything they could refer to. There were questions. Um, people were leaving Islam. People were attacking Islam. Our children were being attacked um, on questions such as, well, uh, you know, attack on the Prophet's character, um, Sharia, and, you know, uh, Islam is barbaric, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and you would see attacks by, you know, really multiple multi-million dollar organizations that were doing just that. Um, and this became very popular, very common, and politicized in 2016 onward. So that's when Yakin is born to get to basically uh, the academics and very few academics who were writing clearly as Muslims and who have the wherewithal, who have the academic rigor um, to bring truth, bring scholarship from Islamic tradition as well as, uh, you know, modern Western academic scholarship um, and uh, modern Western scholarly, uh, uh, you know, objections as well as uh, discovery of Islamic tradition has been quite remarkable. It's something maybe we could talk about at a different time, but that cannot be uh, ignored. Um, often you find, for example, that if you go to a traditionally trained scholar on any given issue, if they don't know Western objections, they don't know intellectual history that's been produced, they will have no idea how to respond, and their response will look sophomoric because they don't know that this problem, the answer that they're giving has already been challenged um, and perhaps uh, uh, sometimes debunked and sometimes merely, um, uh, you know, spun in such a way that people it will confuse people. So if they do not know intellectual history, right, um, they will be at a disadvantage. If they do not know, uh, say, a theory, empirical theories in psychology, for instance, uh, if they don't know what even earlier Muslim scholars themselves said about a given problem, they will say, 
you know, X is the position of Islam on this issue, and it's always been the same. And a non-Muslim undergraduate will say, huh, really? Well, look at this. I only have to Google this position to say, like, five luminaries of your own madhab have sen- said something different. So you cannot avoid that, right? It's 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 a usually, uh, you know, a lazy Facebook post or whatever, YouTube, you can do that. But if you're trying to elevate level uh, Islam, Islamic discourse to the level where it can last outside of social media cycles. You have to take truth and method uh, uh, seriously. But, uh, so that's, uh, that's one of the things that Yaqeen tried to do. Um, and however, Yaqeen was produced, again, as I said, in a time of uh, a rabid Islamophobia. And I don't like the word Islamophobia. Nevertheless, it... it Everybody knows what it means now. Um, but it produced too much, too quickly, and with uh, less concern for quality uh, control uh, than uh, its leadership realized it should have been the case before. Right, So that's, that's where I was brought in. People felt that too much was published. It was not of all the same quality. Some was really, really wonderful, transformative. Some mm-hmm. was uh, not so much. Um, and, um, and, and also the other thing that people realized is that, uh, alhamdulillah, because of the success, and that's a challenge of any organization when it succeeds, it has to figure out what else to do now. Um, a number of younger du'at organizations grew up that were doing brilliantly what Yaqeen was uh, started doing and provided sometimes one could say the foundations of doing. But so in other words, there were now defense of Islam uh, or, or attempts at defending Islam available in almost, you know, in the area of intra- interfaith dialogue, in the area of <coughs> science and, uh, you know, atheism and all of those things. Mm-hmm. So those were the two things that were going on when um, I was brought in. Uh, one, figure out quality control. And second, uh, as the organization itself is thinking about evolving its goal into something bigger, something deeper. It, it, it grew too quickly. It was too successful in a very short period of time. And, and therefore, there was a deep rethinking needed. Uh, so those are the two things that we uh, that I have been concerned with. And one of the things that we decided immediately as I came in um, was to uh, radically slow down the publications and focus on figuring out the process, figuring out quality methods, figuring out the direction. And alhamdulillah, I think we're at a stage where um, we have done that. We Our, our publications the last year and a half uh, have been... Uh, markedly more um, of a higher quality, I believe, um, uh, and and lower pace. Mm-hmm. We have, um, as we have tried to figure out the, the proper methods and, and uh, authors. One final thing I'll say is that Yaqeen has moved toward a an understanding, uh, particularly through this COVID era, uh, it grew so fast, so quickly, and people 
are looking at Yaqeen not only to answer doubts that are being created by outsiders, um, but rather people are coming to Yaqeen to find their basic guidance on Islam and aviation. Um, and this means a much bigger responsibility than just writing rebuttals. And that has led us to uh, expand our focus, our research, you know, our, our survey of understanding Muslims. All of those things have had to adjust from what it was before, uh, which is yakin in the name of uh, a yakin against external tax, to now yakin in our daily life. In other words, we've gone from being antidote to daily nutrition as well. Yeah, that's that's very fascinating. So, I mean, so there's a lot of change. So it's a dynamic organization, and that's been my experience as well. You know, um, I guess just just two follow-ups. What what were the parts of the current sort of review process that are in place now that weren't part of it earlier on that, you know, before you were orthodoxy checks, were they a thing? Were, are they something that's sort of a, a recent sort of addition? Like uh, what wasn't there, right? That maybe people uh, at a certain point, the leadership decides like, you know what, we really need this extra layer in order to achieve the results that you're mentioning. Yeah, I think that like in any uh, young organization, as processes are not uh, in place, um, even though informally they're there, but they're not institutionalized. So, for example, if somebody really important writes an article, it uh, you know you want to get it out there because there's like a oh, there's a burning question. You want somebody important to address it, um, and you don't ask yourself the question necessarily of you know, uh, does, would it work in a blind review, for instance? Mm. Um, an argument that that's passionately felt by an important person may not be a good argument. To give you an example. Um, similarly, um, sometimes my understanding is that the blind review process, I mean, there's some kind of orthodoxy check already there because those who are involved were religiously educated to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, they were experts both in the academy and in traditional education. Um, but there wasn't necessarily a, a tone. Um, and so th there is a, there is a way in which academics talk, mm -hmm. uh, which is, um, basically laid out, laid, you know, the way you, you, you teach in a graduate seminar, whether right. you're teaching Muslims or non-Muslims, you don't say, uh, oh, I'm concerned about how this is going to affect you. In fact, you present material that will challenge you, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So you almost have the habit as an academic to highlighting what sounds to, uh, what, what will challenge your framework but it's a little bit shocking. Um, and that's part of academic rigor. That's part of academic integrity, I would say, even. That you got to lay it out. You got to say everything. You got to, especially, uh, you know, if you're uh, speak, if you're, if you're talking to graduate students, people who know where to, where to get the right answer and so on. Mm -hmm. um, 
that's not how um, majority of our readers can read anymore. Right. For two reasons. One, um, there are people, you know, who who will consume it without regard whether it's antidote, medicine, or nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are people who will find what you are doing offensive for one reason or another, whether those reasons are good or bad, we can set that aside. And so they're going to assign absolutely the worst interpretations um, that are available to what you're doing. Um, and this, to some degree, this is a fitna that exists in any Muslim community. In the most righteous Muslim communities, misunderstanding could emerge among good people. So uh, among the Sahaba, for example. So as the scope grows, so does the pressure to speak to a broader audience um, and to do more. Uh, That wasn't there before. Mm -hmm. At that point, when when you're the only voice, when you're trying to defend, when when you feel that the Muslim community is under attack, Islam is under attack, um, you're going to think differently than when you feel, well, now we have those things covered and now we need to construct and build for the next, you know, mm-hmm. for the next generation. Uh, you have to put different kind of thought and more thought into it. Right. Would you say that early on sort of maybe Yakin's understanding of itself and its strategy was to sort of give a platform for multiple positions and multiple voices on an issue without um, as much regard for trying to clarify what what someone should come away believing. Would you say that that's accurate? That is correct. That is one major transformation because as people realize that, or as as the organization realizes that people are coming to us not, not for an academic opinion, a way to resolve a problem, uh, or responded to a doubt that exists out there, but um, to know what is the Islamic position on this issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that was, yes, go ahead. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, so that is what created a lot of thinking. That, well, are we? You know, how can we do this? Mm-hmm. Um, because this isn't a uh, a debate or an apologetic um, endeavor uh, only, but rather it is a much more constructive and much more deliberate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the recent sort of additions, yourself included and myself included, are sort of testament to kind of, you know, um, we have a mandate, I think, right? Um, sort of the the organization's change in direction. I mean, I visited sort of, I went to Dallas and, you know, took part in the organization sort of meeting in, in November. And then I started working full time in, in March 1st. Um, and, uh, I, I definitely felt like I was brought in to do a very sort of similar thing that that you were brought in to do, which is sort of achieve this change from going from maybe distinguishing it from an academic journal, right? Because an academic journal, that's what you do. You lay out all the opinions. As you said, the professor mentality is to complicate things, not to necessarily clarify things. It's the challenge and not necessarily sort of let the person walk away with certainty. Um, and figure out that where we're going as an organization, we really want to be doing the latter. We have to clarify. We have to instill certainty. We have to express a, uh, a singular voice on these sorts of issues. Um, 
so that brings me to just the very, very last sort of, uh, I think, question. And then, you know, this is going on uh, for a, a good time and we could probably have it go on all day, but we do have to, to wrap up, which is, um, it, you know, I've already in my, my short time uh, had to go back and relook at older works and older papers that were published before these sorts of checks or before this sort of refinement or uh, of mission and strategy was sort of done. So what's sort of the strategy there? What do we have a, a criteria or a process in place? If something was published previously, you know, what is the level that, uh, you know, of deviation from that mission that warrants a mere edit versus uh, an update versus a complete retraction? Like, like uh, how is that process unfolding? Yeah, so I should say that before I joined as editor in chief, I was I worked for about a year, you know, on a voluntary basis as um, uh, as part of the editorial review board, whose um, purpose was precisely to um, constitute a, a, a group of experts within the organization, some without or some more marginally connected, to have different voices to. Uh, respond to any uh, objections or critiques or requests for correction or removal of articles because pe people felt they were offensive or wrong or um, uh, or non-representative and so on. Um, and we came up with this uh, with this process, which is um, Basically, when something, when an article is recommended for additional review after publication, then we go through it and make a recommendation based on blind review again. Um, uh, but that blind review is done with the new criteria in mind. And the new review process, I should say, is just much more detailed and robust. Um, so... We used to just send people, you know, review this. Now we have very specific questions. We request uh, reviewers to look at those. And those people who reviewed our stuff over and over understand much better what we are looking for. So the review process is much more robust. So mm -hmm. as it goes through the more robust process, then new recommendation are made, uh, recommendations are made. Um, uh, and those could be um, remove an article uh, or it could be keep it or it could be uh, that it keep it for the record that in case somebody searches, but no longer uh, circulate it. Those are different recommendations. I see. And so this work is still ongoing, right? Because um... yeah, so it's a it's if you will a permanent function. Anyone can you know in you know uh, object offer us feedback, offer offer us correction, and. Um, uh, so long as we find it persuasive and in good faith, um, we will act on it. We will um, um, send it back to the editorial review board um, and, um, and and look at whether the, you know, if an article is merely, you know, not quite up to our writing standards or not quite up to our tone, that's one thing, but if it is something that we feel that as an organization, um, as an institution, we uh, either cannot stand behind it mm -hmm. and or uh, 
it has some benefit, but its harm outweighs its benefit. Mm-hmm. Like that's how we pose the question for uh, our reviewers. Do you think that the harm outweighs the benefit right? Uh, or not? Mm-hmm. So it may be that you see um, one of the things that you realize in, in the intellectual world, you can go and look at the works written by the greatest ulama of Islam and you will find stuff that other people disagreed with and that the large majority of Muslims came to disagree with. Mm-hmm. But those, you know, every madhab has its um, areas, like skeletons, let's say, that other madhab sometimes make fun of, other times they know they think that uh, that's scandalous. Um, similarly, every scholar, every individual scholar, has said some things that they either would have retracted or changed their positions. Anybody who does history of Islam or studies ilm properly knows this stuff. Um, and so it is not our intention to say that in every article, everything that anybody happens to disagree with, uh, we're going to remove. Mm-hmm. But rather, there is going to be an assessment of uh, benefits and harms. Mm, right. Um, and so I think that we have a lot to look forward to. Uh, and that's that's part of the reason that I, you know, believed in in, in the vision going forward to, to join forces. And I'm obviously honored to work with with yourself as long uh, in addition to everybody else and really look forward to see what uh, what the future holds and what we can produce. Dr. Oima, I really thank you for your uh, your exhaustive treatment and your careful your careful rendition of all these issues. Um, always a pleasure to to have a conversation, and hopefully, inshallah, we'll have another one soon. Subhanakallahumma, hamdulillah, shalom, la ilaha illallah, wa rahmatullah.